Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. morning, uh, we are continuing in a sermon series that we've been in for a little bit now, uh, a series that we've called Purpose and Power, in which we've looked at the book of Acts, that story of the first churches, uh, the early movement of Jesus' followers moving out from Jerusalem, going into the corners of the known world, bringing uh, the message of the gospel and planting churches, caring for people. And this morning, uh, we are going to be in Acts chapter 22. And just uh, to get us caught up, this is a section, if you remember, uh, Paul was heading into Jerusalem, having uh, conducted his ministry in the Gentile world, having seen many people, uh, outsiders to the life of God's people, come to faith. And what he had done was he had raised money from these far-flung Gentile and Greek-speaking churches uh, to bring to Jerusalem to provide relief for the famine that was going on in Israel at the time. And with him, he was bringing a group of Greek-speaking Gentile Christians to introduce to the Jerusalem church. And he was warned on the way there that this was not going to go well for him, right? That he was not going to be welcome in Jerusalem, that this message that uh, uncircumcised, formerly pagan Gentiles were now included and treated as full members of God's people that this was not going to be a message well-received by the powers that be in Jerusalem. He was warned not to go. He went. And by the time we pick up the story in this reading, he has been, he's caused a riot. He's been beaten. And now the Roman governor has come to say, hey, let's not beat him to death. Let's make sure he has a trial before we beat him to death. And so uh, that's what we're going to be reading is Paul's defense in Jerusalem. So if you're willing and able, would you please stand as we read God's word? This morning's reading is Acts chapter 22, verses 1 through 22. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus, Tarsus in Cilicia, and brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. Being zealous for God as all of you are this day, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. For them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who are with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. 
And since I couldn't see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me. And standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. In that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed to you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. This is God's word. It's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. So as you just heard in our passage today, we have Paul uh, recounting once again the story of his conversion, the story of how he went from a persecutor of the church, a, a perpetrator of religious violence, killing those who disagreed with him, having seen Jesus on the road to Damascus changed becoming a follower of Jesus, and then sent as a missionary uh, all over the world. Now, we've already preached on Paul's conversion story. That happened uh, earlier in Acts chapter 9. But Paul, we're going to get this story three times in the book of Acts. We get it the way Luke tells it in Acts 9, and then we get it again here in Acts 22, and then Paul's going to tell it again in Acts 26. This is one of those times when you're reading the Bible and you run into them, tell the story, and then a little later they tell it again, and then maybe a little later they tell it again. And if you're like me, you look at it, you go, this is, look, I mean, the, the Bible's already getting kind of long. Maybe, maybe an editor could have come along, and we could just get it, you know, Luke could have just said, yeah, then Paul said, he told you what I told you earlier in chapter 9, just footnotes it. But we see this happening all through the Bible. Uh, you know, we see Joseph, in the story of Joseph, he... Uh, the author tells the story, and then later he recaps the story. Uh, we see in the Exodus, Moses leads the people uh, through the water and the Red Sea to the other side. Then he writes a song about how he just did it, and you read the whole thing over again. Uh, God's covenant with David we get uh, in Samuel, then again in Chronicles, and then a couple of times in Psalms. And you go, well, what's going on? By modern standards, this is not uh, making for great reading just repeating itself over and over again. But in the worldview of the Bible, uh, what we're learning is that telling our story is a vital part of the Christian life, yeah. Yeah. right? Not just God's activity in the world, God's activity in our life, but then our telling the story of God's activity in our life is a vital part of Christian worship and witness, right? It's a part of our worship, giving thanks for what God's done in our lives. And it's a part of our witness. That's what Paul's doing here is he's telling his story as a way of telling God's story of what he's done in an effort to persuade his hearers 
that what he's saying is true. He's telling his story to his hearers, even his opponents, so that it might move them to believe the gospel, that it might persuade them. Let's talk about that for a minute. Persuasion. The idea of engaging with someone uh, with whom you disagree with the idea of changing their mind about something that you believe. To persuade is to engage someone with the goal of changing their mind. It's to have an interaction in which we hope to persuade another person of the truth of our convictions. Can you imagine something like that? Can you imagine having a conversation with somebody and leaving that conversation and going, you know what, we disagreed, but now I see it differently and I think you were right. Or maybe if, not, maybe if that's too much to ask, at least getting to, huh, I never thought about it that way before. To persuade, to engage with someone in order to convince them of something that you deeply believe to be true is a wonderful thing. It's an art form. And it's virtually dead. <laughs> Before we get too excited about it, uh, it almost is impossible in our day and age. Persuasion being an unnoticed casualty of our tribalization. We sit in echo chambers in which our own already held opinions reverberate back to ourselves, where we look for other people to tell us what we already believe in a different voice. So we go to the same radio stations, websites, news sources to be reinforced in what we already believe. We sit in a choir that we belong to and then preach to, to have our own beliefs reinforced back to us. Philosopher Jamie Smith wrote these words in 2013. That's about nine years ago, and this has not gotten better in the last nine years. In such a world, in such a tribalized, fragmented world, an accompanying casualty is the lost art of persuasion. Instead, we get posturing and pronouncements and ultimatums. In other words, we get just the sort of public discourse that we deserve. Emotive appeals that shame our opponents, coupled with saber-rattling denouncements that rally our troops. What's important is that we preach loud enough to be sure everyone in our own choir hears us. Friends, as Christians, we can't afford to give up on persuasion, on the hope that we might be able to dialogue and engage with someone who disagrees with us about things that we believe matter most in the world in the hope of persuading them of truth persuading them of our own convictions. To give up on persuasion is to give up on evangelism. It's to give up on the notion of public truth and the common good, this idea that we are seeking the welfare of our city, of our neighbors, of those around us. We need to hold on to the hope that it's possible for someone to change their mind, that it's possible to engage in a relationship with someone with the goal of persuading them of the truth of the gospel. We live in a world in which the idea of persuasion is viewed with suspicion, right? It's viewed with a, who are you to tell me anything? What made you so right? How do you get so righteous? 
what we're going to see in this passage is that persuasion is about more than arguing, right? It's not about having a right answer for every question that anybody could ever have. It's about a relationship in the context of a life surrendered to the kingdom of God, being willing to speak our story, being willing to speak truth. And so let's look at persuasion, how we can tell the story so that people will listen and that God will be glorified. And maybe, just maybe, some minds will change. The first key to persuasion for the gospel comes when we live our life in light of God's larger story. Right? It comes from people who live their lives in light of the story of the kingdom of God. Look at, uh, you know, we're, we're just reading uh, these 22 verses to kind of cover this whole story of Paul in Jerusalem. But if we look at how Paul finds himself in this position where he's standing in front of a crowd, telling his story of Jesus, why is he in this situation? Well, he's in this situation, we learn in chapter 21, because Paul was living his life in a new story, a story in which his hearers, the story in which the Jews of Jerusalem had not yet caught up to. Paul was living his life as though the kingdom of God had come. What did that look like for him? For him, it meant bringing this new Jew-Gentile band of Christians into Jerusalem. To understand this, we have to understand that Jews and Gentiles were at a place of deep animosity towards one another. They did not like one another. They viewed one another with suspicion and even hatred. And yet what Paul had seen after his conversion and as he went out into the world was he saw uh, these Gentile believers in Asia and in Greece coming to genuine faith in the true God, singing his praises, giving him prayers, and then sending out of the generosity of their hearts an overflow back to Jerusalem to care for the Jerusalem church. Paul had seen things that led him to believe that reality had fundamentally changed, that it was no longer Jews on this side, Gentiles on this side, but that God had reconciled both through his cross to make one new people of God. And Paul said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and when I get there, I'm not going to stop living in light of that reality. I'm not going to go to Jerusalem and then pretend that what I know to be true isn't true anymore. Instead, I'm going to go and I'm going to live my life in light of the kingdom of God. And they're going to have questions about it. They might hate it and bad things might happen to me. But this is my reality. This is the reality that Jesus has brought into the world. Paul knew this. This is what gets him in trouble. If you look at chapter 21, in verse 28 and 29, we see this riot begin. And some uh, were told that one little band of the people in Israel, in verse 28, begins crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone against the people and against the law and against this place, that this place there is the temple. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into this temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, 
And once the gates were shut, were shut and they were seeking to kill him. Right, so what happened was Paul brought this band of Gentiles into the city. One was this Ephesian guy. And he was living as though they were, they were fully incorporated members of the people of God, these uncircumcised Gentiles. If you want to get a notice in how not to persuade anyone of anything, uh, look at how this crowd responds. It looks like, so what they're accusing him of is having taken an uncircumcised Greek believer into the temple. And it said they saw him in the city and they assumed that he had gone into the temple with him. And it doesn't seem like he did. It seems like this was an assumption that they made on the basis of having seen him somewhere. And so a good way to not persuade or to not have a conversation is to say, hey, I saw this, therefore blank, therefore let's kill him, <laughs> right? It was, I saw somebody who did something that I think is wrong, and so I'm going to stone him. I'm going I'm to go against him. And Paul gets beaten to within an inch of his life. Because he was willing to live within the reality of the kingdom of God in a world that did not recognize it, in a world that had not caught up to this good news. And friends, that is the context in which we witness to the truth of the gospel, in which we try to persuade our neighbors of the reality of the kingdom of God. To be a Christian is to live as a citizen of that world in the midst of this world. Right? It's to live as though and to live within a community that believes Jesus when he says the kingdom of God is here. The most persuasive thing that we can do often is to live as if the kingdom really has come. To begin to embody the values of the kingdom and to live under the reign of Jesus. Right? Remember, if you want to know what the kingdom of God looks like, remember the words that we just prayed. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's to order our lives under the reign of God so that our lives might be more a reflection of his will in heaven. It's to live in a kingdom of generosity in the midst of a world of greed, a kingdom of reconciliation in a world of prejudice and animosity and hatred, a world of sexual fidelity and chastity in a world of libertine desires, a kingdom of peace in a world of violence, love in a world of lust, life in a world of death, self-sacrifice in a world of self-serving. To live in this way in the world is necessarily provocative, right? For good or ill, right? This was a provocative way for Paul to live. Paul did this because he believed it was true. He lived it out and he nearly died for it. In a world that doesn't recognize the kingship of Jesus, to live as this kind of counterculture does provoke a response. It might be the response of curiosity. Remember what Peter says in 1 Peter, be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. It might be somebody coming up, your neighbor, and saying, tell me about how, how and why you do this or believe this or live this way. It might be a good-natured curiosity, or it might be vitriol. French philosopher Blaise Pascal put it this way, for every man is almost always led to believe, not by proof, but through that which is attractive. 
right? It's, it, most are persuaded not simply through being argued into a way of thinking, but being enticed by something beautiful into a different way of believing, right? To see something that's captivating and attractive, to see a church really and truly living as members of a different kingdom, to living under a set of different values is perhaps the best and most persuasive means of our, of our witness in our world. So the first is to live our lives in light of God's story under his kingdom. The second uh, key that we see in this story to persuasion is that we love our hearers as ourselves. That ultimately persuasion is an act of neighbor love. It's to try to love your neighbor by speaking the truth. To love your neighbor by sharing your life and your story and the story of God. To do that, it requires a posture of love and respect towards our hearers and towards our neighbors. I love this in verse 22. Remember who these people are that Paul's, uh, Paul's addressing. They are people who caused a riot, dragged him out of the temple, and beat him to within an inch of his life before the Roman governor came and stopped them. And then he starts his talk with the following words, brothers and fathers, brothers and fathers, notice how respectful and honoring his language and his tone is to his enemies, is to people not just who disagreed with him, but with people who were actively violent against him, people who had aligned their life to the point they were willing to kill him. And yet still he meets them in that place where he can treat them and speak to them with respect, with love, and with dignity. To love our neighbors and to seek to persuade them means that we do view them as worthy of respect, as worthy of love, and as someone who's able to be persuaded. Brothers and fathers. Then he meets them further in their world. He had been speaking in Greek, and yet when he begins uh, addressing this crowd, he switches to Hebrew. Paul has skills uh, that I don't possess. I uh, took Greek and Hebrew, but uh, couldn't switch to Hebrew right now if you paid me. But Paul, knowing that this was the language that they heard, the language that they recognized, switched and began addressing them in their language. He respects them enough to give them honor. He respects them enough to speak their language. It's true, I think, that people are rarely persuaded by people who they're not convinced love them or who are not convinced at least like them, right? Rarely has someone persuaded someone from a posture of hatred. Rarely is somebody willing to stop and listen to someone on the basis of feeling judged by that person or being hated by that person. It is uh, a very old, slightly cheesy expression, right? That people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, right? And, that, and it, it does. It's, you know, it's, it's a little bit trite, but it's true, right? That unless somebody feels that you genuinely care about them, that you genuinely want their best, Rarely are they able to listen or to give us the time of day. I love that Paul refuses. These these people had pretty clearly declared Paul their enemy. 
And yet, Jesus tells us, right, to love our enemies and to bless those who persecute us. That's the, the way of Jesus is told in the Sermon on the Mount. Which means, as a Christian, just because someone calls you their enemy doesn't mean that you are. It doesn't mean that you have to return the favor. They can, they can call you enemy, and you can call them brother and father and sister and mother. Because here's what Paul knew. He knew two things. On the one hand, he knew that he held beliefs that his neighbors found deeply troubling, uh, offensive, and a threat to their worldview. He knew that, right? He knew that there was an offense to what he was presenting them that he could not minimize, and he could not do away with. He knew it was there because just a few short years ago, he was them. That's right. That's right. He was killing people that believed what he now believes. And so he knew there's an offensive thing that I believe that is offensive to my neighbor. But on the other hand, I don't personally have to be offensive to my neighbor. Right? I can live my life in such a way that I try to remove every offense other than the gospel that might stand between me and my neighbors. Right, that I can say, look, the gospel, we're told, look, there's parts of Christian faith, practice, and ethics that we are not free to negotiate. Right, that we are, we are not free to negotiate with Jesus on whether or not he really meant it. There's parts of what we believe, what we celebrate. You know, remember last week, we were here with pretty clothes on and celebrating what? The belief that a guy rose from the dead and that it means the salvation of the world. That is, a, that is a tough pill to swallow. So we believe some stuff that is confusing and offensive and that we are not free to modify in order to make it more plausible to our neighbors. But we are called to figure out how to live it, speak it, embody it in a way that removes the other stuff that might be offensive to our neighbors. To remove any pride or arrogance or judgment from the way that we relate towards our neighbors, so that we can communicate towards our neighbors our love, our compassion, and the grace of Jesus. I can be courteous and respectful and honoring, even as I believe that about some of the most fundamental elements of life in this world, they're wrong. And I believe that I'm right. Not because I'm right or I'm smart or I'm righteous, but because, like Paul, I've been changed. Something's happened where the light of God is shown into our lives, convincing us of the truth of the gospel. So we love our hearer as ourself. And then finally, we learn to tell our story honestly. Look, everything we've said so far about persuasion has nothing to do with talking. Right? Everything we've said so far, if you're somebody who we start talking about evangelism, start talking about sharing what we believe. If you go, oh, no, that's for other people. That's for pastors and Billy Graham and people, that crazy guy on the street corner with the megaphone. Right? Nothing we've said so far, everything we've said so far has to do with creating a context for persuasion. Right? A community of people living according to the kingdom of God. Life of treating our neighbors with love, honor, respect. And then, and only then, having created a context of care, a context of kingdom living, to learn to tell our story honestly. The single most persuasive tool that any of us have in persuading anyone is the ability to share our story. The ability to share 
what's happened to you, right? To be a Christian is to have a story, right? A lot of us, look, a lot of us don't feel like we have Paul's story, right? But it's to have a story. To be a Christian is to be someone whom the light of the gospel shone into your life and it transformed your heart. And that story is the most persuasive thing we can offer. And this is not like postmodern subjectivism, right? Because Paul said it, right? Paul is sharing his story as a way into the big story, right? He's sharing his experience as a way into the ultimate reality of what he believes and knows to be true. You know, oftentimes, and a word that we use in church and in Christian circles that you don't use much else in the world is the word stewardship. I don't remember the last time I heard the word stewardship outside of a church. Um, but what, a, what, it, what it means to be a steward is to be someone who's entrusted with something by someone else for a larger purpose, right? And so oftentimes, right, when the pastor starts talking about stewardship, what's he normally about to talk about, Right? <laughs> So stewardship, one of the ways we talk about it is to say, look, all of our possessions belong to God. He's given them to us, but they're not really ours. We're a steward of them, and we're to invest them into the kingdom, right? With Jesus in the parable of the talents. Remember that story where different people got different amounts, and they were supposed to invest it for an increase. Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about being stewards of the mysteries of God, that we're stewards of the gospel, of this gift that we've been given. Elsewhere, he talks about us being stewards of the various gifts that we've received, the many graces of God. But maybe the most important stewardship that any of us have is our stewardship of our own story, right? Other people have money they can give. Other people have gifts that may be somewhat like yours. Other people have the gospel they can tell. But nobody has your exact story, right? Nobody knows in exactly the way that you do, from exactly the angle that you've seen it, the grace of God in Jesus. Right, look, the way that the gospel goes forward, right, there's one gospel, there's one story, one Jesus who died on one cross and then rose. There's one story of redemption. But there have been billions over the last 2,000 years of stories of how that gospel works out in people's lives. There's enough angles on it that even in the Bible, we have four of them. But if you multiply that out by the church, you have the light of the gospel refracting through the prism of God's people and then shining light out to the entire world. And nobody can tell your story in the way that you can tell it. Nobody can tell your story of who God is, how he intervened and showed up in your life, changed your life and then sent you out as his disciple. Yeah. Nobody else can tell Paul's story, Nobody. right? If I sat you down over coffee and you said, tell me your story, and I said, well, I was on a horse on the way to Damascus, and then uh, Jesus showed up. <laughs> you go, that's not true. And we look at stories like Paul's, and we go, man, I wish I had a story like that. And the Christian history is full of stories like that, right? We love Paul's story. We love Augustine's story and Confessions where he was converted through hearing, take, and read, and then picked up the Bible and read it. We have these stories of dramatic conversions. John Newton, the slave trader, converted and wrote Amazing Grace. John Bunyan, whose conversion story became Pilgrim's Progress. But there have been other, countless other uh, Christians in history 
who had very, very ordinary stories that God used to tell their story in a way that changed the world. In the early centuries, Origen and Chrysostom, in the Puritan days, Jonathan Edwards, later David Livingston and William Carey, the fathers of the modern missions movement, all of these people grew up in Christian homes. They didn't have a dramatic, I was on the road to Damascus kind of story. What they had was a gradual learning of who God was, what he offered them, and he, he changed their lives, and then they went and shared their story in a way that changed the world. To do that, to tell our stories, means that we learn to tell our stories honestly. We keep the rough parts and the hard parts and the glorious parts in there. We don't exaggerate them and we don't water it down. We tell our story. Look, we all have parts of our story that are embarrassing and messy. Right? One of, remember, one of the parts of Paul's stories was that he was a murderer and a committer of what today we would call a religious hate crime. Several of them, actually. And that was a part of his story, and he tells it, and he doesn't water it down. Oftentimes, the parts of our story that most grab people will be our honesty about the broken and messy parts of our stories. The stories of our addiction, the stories of our divorce, the stories of our depression, the stories of our, of our lives and what a mess we've made of things. Not just years and years ago before we had it all figured out, but telling today how messy we can be and how desperately we need Jesus. One of the most incredible pieces of public witness that I've seen recently, there's a, uh, a basketball columnist, uh, an NBA basketball columnist that I used to like to read. A man named Jonathan Charks, who's a young man, uh, probably in his early 30s, wrote for an online platform called The Ringer, wrote about NBA basketball, uh, and he was a Christian, has been as long as he's had a career, but rarely talked about it as he was writing in a basketball publication. But sometime, during COVID, two things happened. One, he became a father. They have about a two-year-old son. And the second was that he was diagnosed with a, a really, really rare form of cancer, uh, that's virtually uncurable. They're kind of on to trials and experimental cures. And he wrote a piece uh, published in this same basketball publication that was all about him wrestling with his cancer in light of his faith. He lost his dad early, and he's saying that he doesn't want his son to grow up alone. And he says in this piece that he hopes his son doesn't grow up alone, and his, his best hope of that is to graze him in the church so that maybe these men who walk alongside him and his growth group will come alongside and walk alongside his son were he to die. He talks honestly about his faith. He says at one point, a lot of you don't believe in God, but I'm in the weird position of believing in a God who could cure me, but for whatever reason hasn't. And this is what that means. And it's amazing. This guy's now got, you know, you can put up the Caring Bridge site and all that things. Millions of people are now engaging with this guy's story and hearing the gospel. Because he shared the hard parts. He shared the messy parts. He shared the struggle. So that he could then seek to persuade of the hope that he has in Christ. Hugh Latimer, uh, many of you may know that name. He was one of the fathers of the English Reformation. He had a story a lot like Paul's. He went from being a persecutor of the Reformation church uh, somebody who, when he was a student at Cambridge, was uh, trying to get all the faculty that believed in Luther's Reformation teachings to get them booted out of Cambridge. Any student that was sympathetic to them to get them expelled. 
Less known than Latimer is his friend, a man named Thomas Bilney. Hugh Latimer uh, was one who was one of the early martyrs of the English Reformation. He was one that when burned at the stake, said the, the, the fire that's lit here will burn across Europe. Bilney was less known. He also ended up dying for his faith. But his conversion was less dramatic. He came to faith, the kind of evangelical faith of Luther early on through study, through reading some of the few books that were published in English and circulating England at the time. He read the Bible and was convinced of the truth of them. And yet he saw in his friend Latimer, this guy who was just hell-bent on, on resisting the gospel, somebody who was bent on forcing it out of England. And no matter what he did, he couldn't figure out a way to tell his friend this truth that he had come to believe because he knew his friend was going to hate him if he did. And by this time, they'd both graduated from Cambridge and were two young priests. And so Bilney had an idea. He asked Latimer if he could go to him as a fellow priest and give him a confession. Latimer thought to himself, oh, this is great. He's going to confess to me that he's a heretic now, right? He's going to confess to me uh, all of these errors that he's come to believe and that I can restore him. But what Bilney wanted to confess was his own weakness, his own powerlessness, his own inability to live a life obedient to God, the inability of the church to help him, and the peace that he found when he received the gospel of free justification through the grace of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He described to Latimer how his conscience used to be so uneasy that he never knew if God really loved him, but now he knew what it was to be adopted as a child of God. And Latimer, in that moment, hearing his friend's confession, changed his mind. He was persuaded. The gospel got a hold of his heart. Latimer, in his uh, telling, says, I learned more by that confession than in many years before. From that time forward, I began to smell the word of God everywhere that I went. I learned that though my, skin, my sins were as white as scarlet, they shall be, or, or sorry, as though they were as scarlet, they would be as white as snow. Two young college graduates, one sitting and telling his story, confessing his need of grace, another receiving it, persuaded, changing his mind and coming to faith. It's a story that's happened millions of times. And it's a story that we pray continues to happen in our lives, in our neighborhoods, in our families forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we would long to be vessels of your grace. We long to be people who can persuade, not because we're clever or smart or crafty, not because we have every argument under the sun for why we're right, but simply because that we've encountered the power of the gospel, the resurrection power of Jesus. Lord, we pray that your light would shine in our lives and shine through our lives to our neighbors. Help us to love our neighbors well. Help us to speak words of grace and love. Lord, help us to, to share humbly and yet with conviction the truth that's gripped our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at 
ChristChurchInTown.org.